That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat there. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they had not much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun arose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell upon thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to him who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is he who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in the riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is he who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then has it weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal 
till it was all leavened. Verse 37. 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed means the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net which was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into vessels, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from, from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. Have you understood all this? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now this evening we come to this sixth division, subdivision of the second main division of the Gospel according to Matthew. We are dealing with this second division, the proclamation of the kingdom by the king and um, we now come this evening to this sixth uh, division, parables exemplifying the kingdom. Parables exemplifying the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you will open your Bibles, I hope every one of you has a Bible, if you will open your Bible at Matthew chapter 13, we will straightway start upon this division. Parables exemplifying the kingdom. In this subdivision, we have seven parables exemplifying the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we have here seven parables that the Lord Jesus gave which express truth about the kingdom of heaven, or if you like, illustrate the kingdom of heaven. It is an exemplifying of the kingdom of heaven. Now some would say that in fact we have eight parables and this is a very, very interesting point. I might say at the very outset of this study um, this evening that Matthew 13 is one of the most difficult chapters, at least in my estimation, uh, in the New Testament. For the simple fact is that there is a an extraordinarily wide 
variety of interpretations. In fact, so um, wide uh, is the difference between the interpretations that some flatly contradict one another. Uh, flatly contradict one another. I shall explain that in a moment. This is, I think, the kind of problem we have in Matthew chapter 13. Well now, some would say we have seven parables. Everyone is agreed that we have at least seven. Some would say we have eight parables. Now, where is the eighth parable? Well, they get it in verse 51 and 52, which they say, although it is a slightly different way of putting it, is as much a parable as the other seven. Um, Matthew 13, verse 51 and 52. Um, have you understood all this? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. There's the parable. Here's a householder who's got treasure. Uh, lots of wonderful treasures. They may be furnishings, they may be furniture, uh, maybe jewellery, it may be all kinds of things, maybe antiques, I don't know what. But out of their treasure, they're always bringing old and new things uh, to be marveled at and to dazzle people and um, for the general enjoyment of everyone. There's, the, there's what is thought to be by many to be the eighth parable. Uh, others say it's not quite a parable. However, I just leave it to you. Here in Matthew 13, we have the third great discourse in Matthew. Um, the first four parables, uh, you will note, were given publicly before a very large crowd. The rest, either the last three or the last four, were given privately. <coughs> if you look at Matthew 13 and verse 2, you will see, And there were gathered unto him great multitudes, so that he entered into a boat and sat, and all the multitudes stood on the beach, and he spake to them many things in parables. Verse 36, Then he left the multitudes and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Explain unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So the first four parables were given out in the open, in public to everyone. The last three or four, whichever way you look at it, were given in the house privately to the disciples who came to him. Now, I want you to note very carefully, verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12. He answered, and the Lord Jesus answered and said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Unto you it is given to know the, key, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but unto them it is not given. That's why I have called this um, third great discourse of Matthew, if you remember previous studies, the understanding of the kingdom. The understanding of the kingdom. To you it is given to know the mysteries, or to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the thing I want you to note first 
is that it is given to Christ's disciples, the sons of the kingdom, to know the secrets of the kingdom. It is given to know them. Mark the way it is put. It is most interesting. It is given to them to know the secrets. In other words, these mysteries of the kingdom are veiled to those who are without the kingdom. It is only the sons of the kingdom to whom it is given to understand. But I think we have to go further. A mystery is something that is a secret revealed. But it is not revealed to the natural man. The natural man receives not the things of God, their foolishness to him, whether he be saved or unsaved. The natural mind and the natural man cannot receive and cannot understand the things of the kingdom of heaven, the things of the spirit of God. It is given to us to know. It is given to us to know. Therefore, we have to, under, we have to, we have to underline they, these mysteries of the kingdom are not understood by natural resources or natural abilities or natural capacities. Sometimes we think that the more intellectual a person is, the more naturally intelligent, the more they will quickly understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But this is not so necessarily at all. It is not just given to intelligence, it's not given to natural resources, it is not given to natural abilities. It is given to the sons of the kingdom to know the secrets of the kingdom. In other words, they are not understood by natural resources, but by divine grace. Now we go straight back to last week's study in Matthew 11, verse 25, where the Lord Jesus says that he is so glad that the Father has withheld these things from the wise and, um, and uh, clever and has revealed them to babes and sucklings. That's the secret. It is the childlike in spirit, in an open, meek, humble attitude, to whom a God uh, reveals the secrets of the kingdom. In other words, if you come to this book and shake it like a dog and say, now then, I'm going to understand this thing. I'm just going to shake it as I would shake a, a dog until I've sort of got something out of it. You'll get nothing out of it. It is more closed than ever. You will just wear yourself out trying to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. And all the time you will have a horrible suspicion that something is being withheld from you, that there is a divine veto upon the things of God. But get on your knees, confess your ignorance, tell the Lord that you are absolutely dependent upon the Spirit of God to lead you as the Spirit of truth into all truth. And then you will find that it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Then again, I want you to note that it says in verse 12, For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even what he hath. Now, at a first reading, this is a most harsh and extreme statement. 
For it seems to say that those who've got will have more, and those who haven't, well, it will be taken away what little they've got. It seems the most undemocratic way of, um, of approaching uh, any kind of problem. But it must be understood in this light. He that has the Holy Spirit, he that has the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him, shall be given more and shall have abundance. But he that has not the Spirit of Christ, then in the end, his very natural freedom, his very natural breath will be taken away and he will have nothing. It's a simple law. You see what the Lord Jesus is seeking to underline is the fact these things are spiritually understood. They are spiritually perceived. They are spiritually um, discerned. Therefore, to him that hath will be given. If you've got the one who is the key to the book, then you will be given and you will be given more and more. And you will have abundance. But if you have not got the one who is the key to the book, then even what you have in the end will be taken away. For what are you? You are just mere flesh and blood. And flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you have not the spirit of Christ within you, if God is not in you, then you are only flesh and blood, and that which is born of flesh is flesh. It's fear is flesh. It lives and dies. It exists within the iron circle of flesh. But once God has entered into you by the Spirit of God, once Christ is dwelling within you, then you have opened before you a door which no man can shut. The mysteries of the kingdom are open to you, not only the mysteries of the kingdom down here, but all the mysteries of eternity are open to you, an ever-open door which no man can shut. You have the Spirit of God, God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Then you shall go through that door into all that lies ahead. Heaven's not a boring place, believe me. For this is what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, To him that hath will more be given, and he shall have abundance. There is nothing static about God. It means that one day when we are in the glory, oh, how we shall thank him, that, that we were joined to him in one spirit, and that therefore by the glorious operation of the spirit of God in our heart, a capacity has been given to us of understanding God himself, not merely the things of God, but the very heart of God and the very character of God and the very mind of God and dear child of God the finite shall never completely explore the infinite you and I who are finite and will remain through all eternity finite thank God will never have a chance of getting bored because the infinite will be all around us and therefore you see we have such little minds we can only take in one thing at a time and therefore there will always be the possibility of more and more and more. I don't know if that means anything to you. But if it does, it should thrill you. Because um, we, have, we have been created and we have small minds. God is uncreated and has the eternal mind. Therefore, you see, it is a wonderful thing to recognize that somehow or other we've been given the capacity to unlock the secrets 
of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Well, now I won't stay there anymore, otherwise we'll be there the whole evening. That's why it says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, that a scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasures what is old and what is new. It's so exciting. He has, and therefore more is given to him, and in the end he has abundance. He's not someone who's got a blessed experience 30 years ago, and that's all he's got. And the only thing he can do when he gives a testimony is to tell what happened 30 years ago. He's someone who's got old and new. Some people despise the old, as if it, uh, as if it, well, well, of course, that, that was years ago, you know, and all that's behind me. That's terrible. It is he brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He keeps the old, thank God, but he's always got something new. That's what it means. Now, I think we ought to note, on the technical side, the um, construction and order of these parables. It's quite interesting. You will remember that we said to you that Matthew has a most orderly mind and um, a rabbinical mind. And all the time he was um, sort of putting things in a sort of Jewish order. Now, I don't know whether anyone, I suppose Gentiles will ever understand the Jewish mind. I don't know. Uh, but it's, to the Jew, it's order. Although perhaps to the Gentile, it's not order. And we have here a rather remarkable little construction in the seven parables, or indeed the eight. We have the first parable, which stands on its own, and is an introductory one. Then we have a trio of parables. Then we have another trio of parables. And if there are eight parables, then we have a concluding parable. So if we put it up here, a little arithmetic, we would say, here it is, one plus three plus three plus one. Now I'll put that in brackets just in case some don't think that there is an eighth parable. There you are, that's the construction. One plus three plus three, possibly plus one. <laughs> now it's even more interesting that these two, these two groups of three have got a definite construction. We have one with an interpretation which stands on its own, plus two that have a lot in common. And in the second we have two, which have a lot in common, plus one that stands on its own with an interpretation. <laughs> and if you want to, you put a line right through there, and then you've got those in public, those in private. Well, it's rather an interesting con construction. It might give us a little clue in a moment to uh, the meaning of the parable. Now we come to the first parable. If you will turn to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 3 to verse 9, it is the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower. Now the interpretation is blessedly given to us um, for this parable in ver from verse um, uh, 18 to verse 23 which means that our troubles ought to be over we have the interpretation for this first introductory parable um, 
I don't think there is so much need to um, dwell on this first parable. I think you all know what it is. The seed is the word of the kingdom. The seed is the word of the kingdom. The word of God, the word of the kingdom. The sower is the son of man. That's quite clear. Basically, even if it's behind human agency, the sower is the son of man, the Lord Jesus himself. Now we have four different kinds of experience as a result of hearing the word. If you look in the interpretation, verse 18, um, the Lord Jesus said this, when, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, see? Verse 20, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it. See? Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is he who hears the word, but the cares of the world. So uh, the key to this first parable is, first we have the seed, the word of the kingdom. Secondly, we've got the sower, the Son of Man, Christ. Thirdly, we have four different kinds of um, experience as a result of hearing the word. The first is very simple. The word of God is preached, the word of God is heard, and the birds of the air swoop down and it's gone. Now, we have a little uh, bird thing out here, and we put seed into it, and the birds of the air swoop down, and it's gone. One whole packet of seed lasts roughly about a week. A big packet. And it's gone. They're down, it, and, they, and they're at it, and it's finished. Our Lord Jesus has, this, has given us this picture of those who hear the word of God. It never takes root. It doesn't do anything at all. No sooner has it been sown then the devil, the birds of the air, the enemy, comes, swoops down, and it's finished. It's gone. He may use all kinds of ways to do it, but it's the birds of the air. And the birds of the air in Scripture are nearly always a symbol of evil. Something to do with the satanic kingdom. He brings in other ideas, other friends, other uh, circumstances, different problems and so on, and immediately the word that's been sown has been seized and uh, destroyed. The second kind of experience as a result of hearing the word is very interesting. Here the person receives it with joy. They're absolutely open, bubbling over. Oh, they say this is absolutely marvellous. This is just what we need. Why didn't we hear about this before? Why? This is terrific, absolutely terrific. They take in the word and um, they grow often very swiftly and then on account of the word in other words, because they've become Christians, because it is becoming apparent that something is happening, there is persecution. People at work start, start to laugh at them. They get teased. They get their legs pulled. And then it gets nastier. People at home start to get funny. All kinds of relationships go wrong. And then what happens? Persecution arises and immediately they fall. They never counted the cost. They leapt in fully clothed and then when the persecution comes they've got no roots. It's all on the surface. They're living on the thin topsoil. So they've got no roots. 
Because they have no roots, the sun comes up, it scorches them, and they are finished. Oh, what a picture that is of some people who get converted, uh, and there seems to be a real work of the Spirit of God, but as soon as the trials and troubles come, they've got no root in themselves. It's in the preacher. Their roots are in the preacher. Their roots are in the church. Their roots are in the preaching, you see. And uh, as soon as they're away from that, they've got no roots in themselves. The thing hasn't germinated and taken root, real root, in themselves. Now, there are some people who tell us that every time the gospel, this is one of these fallacies amongst God's people, that every time the gospel is preached, everyone who, who professes conversion ought to be a genuine conversion. There should be no failures. But the Lord Jesus here tells us that this is just not true. Forewarned us. But not only would there be people uh, from whom the word of God was destroyed at the very start, but there would be others who just wouldn't last. I'm afraid it is a realistic, practical truth. The third kind of experience, as a result of hearing the word, we find... Um, in verse 22 is, is that which was sown among thorns. This is the person who hears the word, receives it, and does grow, and does really grow. But then, alongside of his spiritual growth, grow up thorns and weeds. And gradually, as always, the thorns and weeds seem to grow faster than the wheat. And so gradually they crowd it out until there is no more sort of air, no more life to it, and they choke it and take away its life, and it's unfruitful. Now, this is a very interesting experience, this person, because it doesn't say he dies. This one grows, but is unfruitful. He's alive, and that's all. <laughs> and there are plenty of Christians that are alive, and that's all. Just alive. Just, as all. No fruit, nothing else, just alive. No more. It's very interesting, it says here, the cares of the world and the delight in riches. Now, the word delight in riches may um, perhaps not mean a lot to you. I don't know. I think if we were put, if we were to put in that place, ambition, I think you would understand exactly what it means. Ambition. You've got to have money to get anything done. And that's really the point, you see. Delight in riches. Uh, uh, it's the cares of this world. Now, cares of this world don't, aren't necessarily wrong. It just means that the home, the family, the car, the business, everything else comes first. And our hearts and minds are filled with the cares of this world until we are unfruitful. We're Christians, but there is no growth, and there is, there is a certain amount of growth, but no fruit as simple as that. The other ambition, of course, delight in riches, is simply that we are more interested in making capital down here than capital up there. It's as simple as that. So, because of that, we, uh, we are unfruitful. The fourth kind of experience as a result of hearing the word of God is... Um, uh, interesting, it falls on good ground 
and then the Lord puts it in this order, some bears a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He did not say some thirty, some sixty, some hundredfold. He said ah, some hundredfold, that's what he wants. Then some sixty, that's rather sadder. Uh, and then uh, there is uh, that which is only thirty, that is most sad. But anyway, this, but these bear fruit. Some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. But they bear fruit because it's fallen on good soil. It's not, it has root within itself and thorns and weeds do not choke it. Now, that is the parable of the sower. I don't think there's any difficulty there. We will pass straight on to the first trio of parables. The tares, the mustard seed and the leaven. Now it is over these three parables that all the greatest variety of interpretation exists. And what shall we do about this? Now I would first of all um, like to point out one or two things. First of all, will you note carefully that the interpretation of the second parable is given after the third and fourth, which is rather interesting. It is given after the third and fourth, as if it is the key to the trio. So you have, um, you see, it's interesting, when the um, disciples came back, they said to the Lord, explain to us the parable of the tares. Now, would you have said that if you'd heard that parable? Now, we all know it as the parable of the tares, but would you have called it the parable of the tares? Perhaps you would have called it the parable of the good wheat. It's interesting. They got the point. The point was the tares. That was the point. So they called it the parable of the tares. Explain to us the parable of the tares. And it seems to me that somehow or other, this, this parable impressed the disciples as being the one that was the key. It was the one that had the clue to the other um, uh, two. Well, be that as it may. Um, it is, I think, um, rather, all, rather important also to notice that this first parable is to do with the mixture of good and evil in the world. If it is the key to the other two parables, then we have probably the mixture in the growth of the work of the kingdom, the mustard seed, and then the mixture in the teaching and service of the kingdom, the leaven. Now we shall come to this uh, in just a moment, a little more. The second parable is explained quite clearly. In uh, uh, verses... Um, this way, verses uh, 37 to 43, we have the interpretation of the second parable. I think that you will all um, find it self-explanatory. Um, one thing I would like to underline very forcibly is that the field is not the church. The field is the world. Many people have taken this uh, um, parable as um, uh, the basis for saying that in the church there can be unbeliever and believer yoked together in membership there can even be unbelieving bishops or unbelieving off officials it doesn't really matter because the Lord said the tares and the wheat will grow together and we are not to disturb the tares they say we are just to lead it to the end 
Now this is in flat contradiction, of course, to what the Apostle Paul and others have said to us in the letters. Uh, the point is that it is not the church that is in view here, but the world. The field is the world, not the church. And the problem is the good and evil together. In other words, why does God allow judgment to come on those who are righteous? The Christian. And why sometimes does blessing come upon those who are manifestly unrighteous? God's reign, as we say, comes upon the good and the evil, and God's storms come upon the good and the evil. This is the problem of the second parable. Why and what should be done um, uh, about it? It is in the third and the fourth parable that we have, I think, our greatest difficulty. The mustard seed. Now, we have either here some seed that we cannot now identify, or we have something naturally impossible, or to say the very least, quite abnormal. If it is the ordinary mustard seed, then it can grow to four foot and has been known to grow to ten foot, but that's quite exceptional. I read a book today which said that someone had seen a one of ten foot high with a trunk the size of a man's arm and uh, finches and linnets nesting in it. But I think some people have bent over backwards to try and prove uh, that the mustard seed, uh, that what the Lord said about the mustard seed becoming a tree is of course absolutely genuinely true. The fact is, did the Lord ever intend us to take it as literally true? In other words, did he ever mean that the mustard seed became a tree? Now some people say, oh well in some cases it does. It is true in exceptional, very exceptional cases indeed. Now then, if you look at this parable, the Lord doesn't anywhere suggest that it's exceptional. In fact, he quite suggests that it's normal. In the, in, in, in the version in Luke and elsewhere, it seems well, he says, you plant a seed and it, uh, and it grows and waxes great and becomes a tree. As if it's quite the normal thing to do. But the mustard seed doesn't do that. So either we've got here a seed which we cannot now identify, which was a very small seed indeed, which, which became a sizable tree, or we have something naturally impossible, or to say the very least quite abnormal. That's one thing. Now if this is so, then we have, according to the way you look at it, Either we have the kingdom of God growing by divine and supernatural power. In other words, this, this growth of this mustard seed into a tree is abnormal, it is supernatural. Therefore we have here the growth of the kingdom of God as something quite supernatural. It is by divine agency that the thing grows and expands. But then, of course, we've got the birds of the air. What are we going to say about the birds of the air? Um, normally, the birds of the air are a symbol for evil. So how do we explain this? Well, then we can say, well, the kingdom of God grows large and certain evil things come and nest in its, in its branches. Now, you mustn't just smile at that and all look knowingly at me, as if you know that it's not so. Because in the book of Daniel, you have more or less, in another way, or put in under another figure, 
the very thing in chapter 2 of Daniel and um, verse 35 we read this Daniel chapter 2 verse 35 then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, this is the interpretation, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. Now, you see, this could quite possibly be an interpretation of the parable of the mustard seed. In other words, here you've got something which is naturally impossible or generally abnormal, to say the least. Uh, therefore, you have a picture of the growth, the supernatural growth of the kingdom of God. It is by, by divine power that it grows until it fills the whole universe. Now, that is a very possible interpretation. The other is quite different. In fact, it is quite the opposite. It, the inter other interpretation is this, that it is something, the kingdom of God has become something on earth it was never intended to be and never ever conceived to be in the mind of God. Now you remember how the Lord Jesus says in this very gospel in chapter 21 verse 13 um, this house is called a house of prayer and ye have made it a den of thieves. And then again you've got the same thing in Revelation 17 and 18 that great harlot mother of the harlots of the earth she was once a virgin now she's a harlot once she was the real thing now she has become the plaything of every evil thing in the world she is a harlot now then what do you say about the mustard seed have we got here a picture of the sort of work of the kingdom of God being diverted and becoming something political, something static, something institutional, something traditional, something that God never intended it to be, ever. That's one very real possibility. But I'm going to leave, uh, uh, leave it and pass over to the next parable, with the fourth parable, which is the leaven, because this may help us to understand the preceding one. Here we have in the fourth parable the leaven. And leaven almost consistently in the Bible symbolizes evil or corruption. If you turn in Matthew chapter uh, 16, verse 12, we read this. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So it is quite clear that the Lord Jesus used this word leaven um, in, um, with the idea of it being evil, something corrupt, something evil. 
A little later on, you remember, the Apostle Paul speaks of the leaven, which leaveneth the whole lump. He says, purge out, therefore, the uh, old leaven. Purge it out. Everywhere through Scripture, except in one or two instances only, leaven is con a consistent symbol of evil and corruption. Now, this leaven in this parable is hidden in three measures of meal. Now, what is it? Is it the hidden power of the word of the kingdom? Is that what it is? Many of the traditional common, uh, commentators have said, here we have the, the power of the word of God, the hidden power of the word of God. You can't see it, but it's in the world and it's working powerfully and permeating the whole of society so that even things which are anti-Christian have been permeated by the influence of the Word of God. It's perfectly true. Is that the meaning of this parable of the leaven? Or have we a mixture? It symbolizes, it illustrates the mixture which has been introduced into the word and the service of the kingdom from the beginning. So that now the very teaching, Christian teaching and so on, has somehow been permeated by that which is false. Well, what are the three measures of meal that may, get, may be the clue to it all? If it is the ephah, the ephah was three, three uh, measures of meal. If it is the ephah, then we may have here the meal offering. And in the notes which you will get next week, uh, you will find some references which you can look up to make sure yourself whether this is so. Is it the meal offering which is here? Now, if it is the meal offering, then we've got the clue. We've got the key. Because the meal offering, which you remember Gideon offered up and Hannah offered up, um, an ephah of fine flour. Well, that if it is the meal offering in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 11, we are told that leaven is prohibited. It must be without leaven. Now, if that's the case then, and that meal offering stands for service, then we have got here the clue. There is something evil which has been introduced into the pure bread, into the pure flour, and has been hidden within it and is doing its deadly work within it till it leavens the whole lump. Well, now, if we look back over this, what shall we say? What is the interpretation of this trio of parables? Well, I said at the beginning that I, had a, I thought it was interesting that the interpretation of the second parable comes after the third and fourth. Therefore, I incline to the view that we have with these three parables set before us mixture. First, we have the good and the evil in the world together, tares and the wheat. Then we have next the mixture which has come in the work of God, so that it has become something which is earthly, something which is just organized, something political, something institutional, something into which the world has flooded and taken over. The birds of the air have all come and lodged in its branches, so that it has become as much part of the world as anything else. 
Then we have, thirdly, the teaching of the and service of the kingdom into which so much has come that is not right. And those of you who know church history, well, uh, we don't have to stop uh, there. In your mind, you can start just to think of where it all started and how it came in. And when you think of the Reformation, what a recovery of truth. When you think of the other great moves of the Spirit of God in church history, to recover what has been lost. Something was lost at the beginning. Leaven came in. It was hidden within the whole thing. And so gradually, as we call the dark ages of the church, all was lost. And now the Spirit of God, step by step, stage by stage, has in each generation recovered something. If only in a remnant, until the coming of the Lord, when his bride shall be presented without spot or blemish to the Lord. The second trio of parables um, we have after this from verse 44 to verse 48. Now I have uh, these, I think you all know, the hidden treasure, the priceless pearl, and the dragnet. Now, these are a little simpler, although, again, the interpretations of these uh, parables, especially uh, the um, first two of this second trio, um, are, again, very controversial. But in the first, I want you to note that in the first of this trio, the field is bought by selling everything else in order to get the treasure. In the second parable of this trio, all was sold in order to buy one pearl of great value. In the third parable of this trio, the net brought in all kinds of fish, but only the good were kept. Now the main points in these three parables are these. The priceless value of the treasure and the pearl to the seeker or finder. The second thing, the delight when the seeker finds and obtains the treasure and the, or the pearl. The third thing, the purchase of the whole field by selling everything else or the bringing in of all the fish in order to get the valuable. That's the third thing. And the last thing, the tremendous cost involved. All that he had. All that he had. Now surely you've got here a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. His dying for all in order to obtain the elect. In other words, he bought the field that he might obtain the that's the teaching of the first one. The second is that the net brings in all kinds of fish. That's the net of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's enough, to, as it were, to encompass the whole world, but only those who respond are saved. Or you have the pearl of great price, and the accent there is upon the price of the salvation. He sold all that he had that he might obtain the pearl of great value. Well, there we are. Those are those parables. 
The eighth parable or concluding word, however you like to look at it, is the householder. And um, we are told that the sons of the kingdom are like doctors of the law, scribes, students of the word of God, being trained for the kingdom. And they have always got old, new and old in the treasure. They're always, they're always bringing out from the treasure not only what is old, but what is new. In other words, they have not only what is past experience, but what is present experience. This is the sign of someone being trained. Someone being trained, it's fresh. It's not all in the past. There's something fresh. And the sign that a man or a woman is in the, under the educating work of the Holy Spirit in the school of Christ is that they've always got not only what is old but what is new. They've got an up-to-date experience. It's the hallmark of training. When a person is sort of not in the school, well, it's all past. All harks back to some years ago or something that happened a long time ago or so-and-so, when so-and-so preached, I remember, and so on and so forth. But when we're in the school of Christ, and he is himself, he himself has us in hand, then it is new, it is fresh. All the time there is something new and old that is coming out. Well now there is the 13th chapter of Matthew. It is not an easy chapter. But there is a sense in which, generally speaking, it in one way, perhaps the evidence of its divine um, inspiration is that it can be looked at in different ways and the way we look at it does not necessarily damage us. In other words, if I look at the parable of the, of the mustard seed, of the mustard seed, and I see it as the growth of the kingdom of God in a supernatural way by divine power, that's not wrong. Others may feel I'm quite wrong in my interpretation, but it's not wrong. If, however, I start to teach that the field is the church, <laughs> and then therefore we can open the doors to unbelievers and welcome them and adjust to them inside, that is entirely wrong. Why? Because it's anti-scriptural. And because it does not teach that. But in fact, the parable may, by its very inspiration, be like a diamond which flashes different colours as you look at it in different lights. I personally need the mustard seeds speaks to us of the mixture that has come into uh, the kingdom. So that on earth, it is really a picture of Christendom. Christendom, not Christianity, but Christendom. All the birds of the air have flocked into its branches. Not only has it, it, it itself become something that God never intended it to be, but all kinds of false sects and heresies have flocked into its branches. Um, they call themselves Christians, Christian School of U uh, uh, Christ Unity School of Christianity, Christian Science, Christadelphianism, Jehovah's Witnesses, all these things taking the name of God with absolutely no right at all to the name Christian. Birds of the air flocked into the, into the traditional tree. Well, there you are. I say it uh, may admit a number of interpretations. If you want to look upon the pearl as Christ, 
and that here you are the merchantman and that when you find Christ it costs you everything you can do so if you want to look upon yourself as the one who comes and has to buy the field in order to get the treasure you can do I don't think it's a very satisfactory interpretation but there's nothing actually wrong about it because the Lord Jesus is treasure and the Lord Jesus is a pearl of, of supreme value it's perfectly right in that sense so you see it may well admit I have given you what I believe to be uh, the right interpretation now we come to the last uh, subdivision the seventh I want to change that um, title there I've called it growing opposition to God's kingdom growing understanding uh, you'll see in the notes which you get next week that I have entitled it the growing controversy over God's king it's a much simpler title and a much better one the growing controversy over God's king now in this section this this last few chapters um, we have the record of many more miracles grouped into six instances for where multitudes are either healed or fed in fact the whole of this section is more or less in the presence of multitudes we have one or two instances where it's only the disciples um, but generally speaking uh, the um, groups of miracles these six groups of miracles are four of them anyway in the presence of great throngs and multitudes we have also five other incidents so Matthew has in fact given us six miracles or groups of miracles and five other incidents and all display on the one hand the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ of God's King further authenticating and vindicating his teaching his person and his claims and on the other hand displaying the growing anger of the opposition now the material is set out in such a way as to bring the growing opposition into sharp contrast with the growing understanding and recognition so on the one hand you have growing fury and on the other hand, growing recognition. It's a very, very interesting thing. It, the material is set out in such a way that you have it in sharp relief. Uh, the, the acceptance of the poor people and of certain individuals is put against the dark background of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and their opposition to the Lord Jesus. Uh, for instance, if you want to take these chapters, you will see, for, if you look at uh, chapter 13, from 54, 53 to 57, you have the opposition of his own country people, his own home country people, all, all round Nazareth. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all this opposition? 
from the people he'd grown up with. Now it's an extraordinary thing that the people the Lord Jesus grew up with were the people who did not recognise him. And it says he could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So it is extraordinary that the people the Lord Jesus grew up were the people who were stumbled. They could not accept him. Chapter 14 from 1 to 12 you have the martyrdom of John the Baptist and the frivolous, superficial way in which this greatest of all the prophets was martyred. A woman's whim. Terrible thing when you think of it. The head of the greatest of all God's prophets put on a silver platter and brought in amongst in a party. That was his end. And that's the way the world has always treated God's great servants. And then again... Uh, in chapter 15, from 1 to 20, you have a great uh, um, argument with the Pharisees, their opposition and so on. Chapter 16, 1 to 4, again you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees together. They come to test him, asking for a sign. Now those are, that's the growing opposition. But set in that, you find in chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, here we've got it, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. As he went ashore, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them, and healed their sick. Chapter 15, verse 22. Now listen to this Gentile woman, this Syrophoenician woman. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. In other words, she recognized him as the Messiah. The Jews were rejecting him, but a Gentile woman calls him the son of David. She recognises him as the, as the Messiah, son of David. And then um, chapter 15, 29. And Jesus went on from there and passed along the Sea of Galilee. And he went up into the hills and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the dumb, and many others. And they put him at his feet and he healed them. So that the throng wondered when they saw the dumb speaking, the maimed whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. The poor people worshipped anyway. And then also, if you look back to chapter 14, verse 35, when the men of that place recognized him, they sent round to all that region and brought to him all that was sick and besought him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. So you've got these, these cases of recognition, growing recognition and understanding, set against the very dark background of growing opposition. In chapter 14, verse 33, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, thou art the Son of of God. This is the first time in the Gospel according to Matthew that they have recognized the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. An even greater um, uh, confession is going to be made a little later after this. But this is the first time here we've got growing understanding and recognition. The disciples worshipped him as they would worship God himself saying truly thou art the Son of God, God the Son. Now, in the um, 
in chapter 14 from verse 22 to 33, we had the story of Christ walking on the water, on the stormy sea. And I spoke about on it, you remember, on Sunday morning. And I believe you have here, in this that I have called the growing controversy over God's King, a picture for all time of Christ walking the sea of controversy. Now, there is no person in the whole history of the world over, him, over whom greater controversy has raged than Christ. Not only his birth and his life and his death, but his church. The whole history of the Lord Jesus Christ has been one of controversy. If you go right back to the Garden of Eden, you find that the, there, you understand it, there was some I will be like the Most High. And right from the beginning, right behind the fall of man, behind the sin of Adam and Eve, and right the way through the whole of the Old Testament story, you've got a, a story of controversy as the devil seeks to destroy the seed of the coming Messiah. Now here you've got it again. This is a picture, I believe, for all time of Christ walking through and riding upon the storms that rage over his person, his work, his word, and his church. Oh, what storms have raged over his person. Is he God the Son? Is he a mere man? What is he? Got it in these very chapters. Oh, the storms that have raged over his work. Did he atone for the sin of the world? Or was it a martyr's death? Was it just a, her a hero's death? Or did he, was it a substitutionary death? He died in my place for my sin. He died bearing away the sins of the world. His finished work has been the focal point of controversy all down the years. What about his word? Why, if either they've looked at his word in a credulous way, so that by superstition they've so overlarded it that they can't accept it or obey it in its practical terms, or they've torn it to pieces, telling us that it is not the word of God, that it has no divine authority, that it was not inspired, we're told that the very stories, such as Jesus feeding the 5,000, raising the dead, are legends and myths. The controversy that's raged over the word of Christ. And what about the controversy that's raged over the church? How the devil has made a takeover bid. My, down through the years, through the centuries, made a takeover bid and has all, almost at times seemed to win. Then the Spirit of God took the initiative. And out from that which the devil was obtaining, he took people and started all over again. For the church, the history of the true church, is not what is outward or apparent, but it is the inward story of a true apostolic succession. It is the story of the movement of the Spirit of God in every generation. That's where the candlestick of pure gold has been in every generation. Somewhere that candlestick has been. 
So you see, it's all very amazing when we see this picture of Christ walking on the water. Is this a little miracle? I remember once hearing someone tell us, uh, a very qualified gentleman indeed, um, theological gentleman, uh, telling us that, of course, we could possibly believe that Christ walked on the water. Uh, the water was so shallow, he obviously was walking on the seabed. I asked him afterwards how it came that the boat nearly sank. <laughs> <laughs> you see, sometimes our intelligence gets to such a place that it becomes stupid. Really stupid. The same gentleman told us that the 5,000, everyone bought their lunch except the first row. <laughs> but it was still a miracle that the Lord fed the first row with five loaves and two fishes, wasn't it? I know some appetites in this place. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's still a miracle. Oh, the, these, these explanations for some of these things. Now, why, why have we got this story of Christ walking on the water? Did he just do it to dazzle us? Did he do it as an exhibition? Did he just do it as a kind of dramatic form of exhibitionism? Look at me, walking on the water. You can't do it, can you? <laughs> No. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he walked on the water, was giving to his church a picture. Just like so many of the miracles he did. They were signs. He's given us a picture for all time of his ability to ride every storm that rages over his person, his work, his word, or his church. The storm can't sink him. And his ability, his authority, to enable his church to walk on the waves of a storm, of the storm as well. That's the picture. Peter is the representative of the church. To him was given the keys. He was the first. And here he comes for us. He becomes the picture of all who have followed. The ability of Christ to make us walk through the storms and ride them out. There is no need to fear. Every single storm in the history of the church has but set the purpose of God forward. That's why we've been given this wonderful picture. Every time the devil whips up a furious tornado and somehow just beats the sea into a fury, what does it do? Some old barges go down to the bottom and we thank God for it. They were so rotten. But believe me, the people can walk, and they do walk, they will walk on the water. What about Haraland Popo? Don't you think he's walked on the water? Thirteen years, eight months in a prison? What about Watchman Nee? Fourteen years in prison. Hasn't he walked on the water? What about the underground church? in Eastern Europe and Russia. What about the underground church in China? Is it not walking on the water? The storm has sunk all those wretched boats of man's making. But uh, his people are walking on the water. It's a picture. You have no need to fear. If the boat goes down, we shall walk on the water. Sometimes it's a good thing for the boat to go down, isn't it? 
we are all have a tremendous capacity for building up a system and an organization and there is organization the church should have some organization it has got a certain system that comes from the life within it but my dear friend that's only just for time there is a sense in which that's not the church it's only the scaffold let that go you've still got the church for the church is the union of Christ and believers and believers in Christ that's why they can't be sunk he can't be sunk so they can't be sunk so here you have this wonderful picture in this that I've entitled the controversy oh the growing controversy over the authority of God's king here it is, a wonderful picture for all time of Christ walking on the water. And think of it, Peter walking on the water. We know he sank, but my dear friend, at least he walked for a while. He did walk. Uh, there we have it. Now, I want to end on one other note. <clears throat> it is surely noteworthy that toward the beginning of this section that I have entitled The Growing Controversy over God, of the Authority of God's King, toward the beginning of this division, we have the record of the feeding of the 5,000. You will find that in chapter 14, verse 13 to 21. Chapter 14, verse 13 to 21. We have the record of the feeding of the 5,000. Then, a little farther on, in chapter 15, verse 32 to 39, we have the feeding of the 4,000. Then, at the very end of this division, from chapter 16, from verse 5 to verse 12, we have the Lord's interpretation of these two signs. Now, don't you think that is rather remarkable? That, that Matthew has brought together uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, and then the Lord's interpretation of it. I think if you carefully read these, when you get the notes, you look it up and you read it, you might un wonder, well, how has the Lord really interpreted it? Well, if you look in chapter 16, uh, verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of the five thousand, how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to perceive that I did not speak about bread? That's the point. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, the Lord Jesus was saying, I wasn't talking about bread. When I fed the 5,000 with bread, when I fed the 4,000 with bread, it wasn't bread that I meant you to think about. Although I can give you the bread that you've forgotten to bring now. <laughs> That's not the thing. You see, he was saying, I am the true bread of life. That's the point. Christ is the true bread of life who alone can meet the deep and terrible need of humanity's multitudes. The religion 
of the, be it Pharisee or Sadducee, fundamental or liberal, <laughs> will never ever meet the terrible and deep need of, hum of, of mankind. Only Christ as the true bread of life can meet that need. And surely it is set forth in these two great signs, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. Whenever men and women have their need met, it is because Christ, the true bread of life, has been given to them. Isn't that what the Lord meant when he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I am the true bread. There is the leaven. I am the true bread. There is the leaven. Well, we could say very much more about that. It's only when Christ is ministered that God can meet people's needs. But when Christ is ministered, people's needs are met by God. There is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. But he meets our deep needs. And we feed upon the true bread of life. He blessed. He broke. He gave. There is a sequence there. It was not only that the Lord had great faith just to take that bread and bless it and break it and give it. I think it's more. If there is something of Christ in you, you've been blessed. Then it must be broken and given. Some of us get the blessing, but not the brokenness. Some of us get the blessing and the brokenness, but we've not been given. The three things go together and are the spiritual history of any true ministry of Christ and any true service. He blessed, he broke, he gave. Shall we pray? Now, dear Lord, we do pray that thou wast right upon our words, some of these lessons. Perhaps there's too much, Lord, for us to retain everything, but we pray that by thy Spirit thou wast right upon our hearts what it is good for us, each one, to retain. Oh, Lord, we pray, do this for each one. We ask it in thy name. Amen. Amen.